for the people. This is episode two. I'm your host, Stokely, aka Be Smooth. And today I have an outstanding guest, a, a pillar of the community, a pillar of manhood, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, Mr. Albert Stinson. Al, how you doing? Hey, and I'm, I'm, I'm blessed, B. I thank you for this opportunity. Uh, so anytime I can sit down with you, brother, man, it's a beautiful thing. All right, man. So, you know, we, we can get to a lot of stuff. So I'm just going to start at the beginning. You know, you were born in, a lot of people know, they, they associate you with the West Side. But you were born in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, uh, I came here when I was four. So I, I've been here ever since then. Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm a Cleveland boy, man. I, yeah, I still love them, 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 them Cavaliers, too. Yeah, man, because nah, I see everybody I know from Cleveland, they got this sort of like, you know, like this is like this 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 like saw the earth this real toughness to him, man. Right. So I was like, oh, like, like I'm from Cleveland. I'm like, yeah, I can see that. Yeah, Cleveland ain't too too <laughs> too different from the shy. So I don't want to get that. Don't get that twisted, man. Yeah, man. We all we, we both got the Great Lakes, man. Like right. Cleveland just got them extra extra clouds and all that. And, and it's country down there too, man. I didn't realize that country was down there until I went back down there in my twenties. I said, man, Cleveland's really country, man. But uh. It's a beautiful town and city, man. And uh, like I said, it's a lot of things that's going down there that's going on here, and ain't no difference down there as far as that. Okay, so you said you moved to Chicago when you were four. So before before that, you lived in Cleveland. So what was your family like? Like you what know, in Cleveland? Yeah. Um, I really can't remember, but I just know my uncle came came down there, man, because we was in a destitute situation. Um, my mother had uh, she became severely mentally ill right after my birth. And so we was at a point where we had to make a move. And my uncle came down and he brought us all back to Chicago. Um, and that was the case with in Cleveland. I'm um, just trying to get a different start. And like I say, didn't want to just trying to look out for my mother too, okay. um, to, to support her with her mental illness. And it was six of us. Yeah, and so my uncle came up there and did, you know, what he thought was right to bring us here. So, so you, you were the youngest? Yeah, I'm the youngest of six. Oh, okay. So you're four years old. So what year is this? Like when you get to Chicago? This, uh, I get in. I come in Chicago. 1976. 76. All right. All right. So it's 1976. Now you in Chicago. What's happening? We, what, you guys moved to the west side. Man, we first moved. Actually, we moved right around the corner. Uh -huh. um, my uncle took us in. He had a little house right, on, right here on Ladman Jackson. Oh, okay. Uh, which I thought was just uh, amazing for him to do. I'm trying to think. I don't know if it was two or three bedrooms down there, but to bring a mentally ill mother and six kids mm -hmm. in a home um, when your kids are grown and out the home and with his wife and his, his wife wasn't too much feeling that, and I ain't, I ain't mad at her because shit, who would want to bring a mentally ill adult along with six kids in a household uh, where there's no kids at? Now you got to deal with this and you have to deal with a mentally ill mother. And... Uh, just, just from my uncle doing that, man, the blessed soul, I just had the utmost respect for him. And I always wanted to be the uncle that he was uh, for even doing that, man. It take a hell of a man to do that, man. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now, you, now, 1976, you're in Chicago, you're living with your uncle. Like, how's, how's it like growing up now? We stayed over there only uh, probably about six months. Then he, he eventually found us uh, our own apartment okay. in East Godfield Park. Right. And when we moved over there, it was like, wow. It was like, damn. Right. Kind of like the jungle, man. We stayed in this this big courtway building, uh, sort of like a project, man. Um, and just five years old, I was I was five because I turned five in September. And just reality started seeking like, damn, this is what it's going to be right now. This is what life is going to be here. 
I'm just seeing so much, so many different things at the age of five, six, seven from that big old courtway building, and adjusting to that. Okay. Uh, and so it was, it was definitely a uh, awakening. So how, how long are we all in the uh, courtway building? I think we stayed there till I was about nine or ten, and then we moved right around the corner mm -hmm. uh, to Madison, Madison, St. Louis. So you like around? This around like the early '80s. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what was life like? You know, man, it was yeah. life was poverty. Uh, shit, we 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 moved from one one house that the whole building, the Coway building, got abandoned. Mm -hmm. So you know, everybody they, they was in there robbing on drugs. We had the big old rats in there, man, uh, and the whole building got condemned. So basically, we had to get out of that condemned building. We moved right around the corner uh, to another to another man building, Willie. Uh, you know, he was known known in the, the community. And the apartment was all right for the first two years. And then, of course, the same poverty thing started happening at that building. He let it go down. Now, here come the big rest again. Um, living with the rest. And this one, no Michael Jackson being type shit. We had, we had, we had gophers. You know what I mean? And uh, where it was like, man, we had to uh, listen to them. Uh, and I tell people all the time, I say, it's funny. Even though the rest traumatized me, man, because you, you couldn't go to sleep. You're scared to go to sleep. You think they'd jump in the bed and bite you. They would do all that. I just started looking at, like, the intelligence levels of rest and how they moved about and how smart they was. Because I, I just didn't I never knew rest was that intelligent. And uh, as I got older, I said, I see why they always study the rest. Because the rest moved the same way a human does. And we used to have all these big old traps and gadgets and Things like that, man. But we never caught a big rat on a on a mice trap. And so one day done, I must say, damn, uh, the rats, they've been there before. They done saw this here. But the mice don't. All the mice see is the food. He don't know no better. He's going to run and get caught. But the rat going to sit back and say, no, I'm going to let other things kill me, but the trap's not going to kill me. And uh, I grew up always to listen to big rats, man, because they just seemed a little bit more than we this scene and I, and I relate that to like when I talk to kids, man, to listen to a big rat, they didn't seem to be foe. You know what I mean? They know what the traps are and had not to get on the traps. And so I use that like as a life lesson growing up, man, from all that trauma and that traumatic stuff, I did take away some life lessons for seeing them big ass rats and just looking at them, man, and being observant of that. And it taught me a life lesson. So that was a blessing. And so, like, you, you know, you're living in these, like, soon to be condemned buildings. But you still, like, you still young, so you still going to school. Like, how, how are you trying to balance that? Uh, man, I dropped out. And uh, I dropped out in the fifth grade because we were just poor, man. I mean, we was dirt, dirt poor, man. That building got so messed up, man, where we couldn't even, we didn't have no water. We just had to walk down the street with buckets, man, to go get water from the liquor store. We didn't have no heat. I think I had one pair of pads, but I tell my sister in the store, I said, man, I couldn't wear them green Cotterill Levi's no more, man, because I said, fuck it, I ain't got no clothes, man, so I'm not going to school, man. Uh, so I, I just dropped out from the fifth grade, because we just didn't have nothing, man. Um, you couldn't uh, you couldn't flush the toilet stool because it wasn't no water. The water was freeze. The water freeze up in the wintertime, man, and I, I just want to be honest and transparent as possible. Man, we used to have to defecate in buckets, man, in the green buckets, and take that shit out and dump that, man. And just, it's like you was living in the alley. And, man, you know how bad that is? You had to walk out 
dump your shit, then take them same green buckets you got, them white pair of buckets, go down the street just to get some water, just to wash your ass in the morning. And so just, I know I may be jumping ahead, but just overcoming those adverse childhood experiences that we call the ACEs, that's been like one of the greatest achievements in my life, man. To say that, man, I really survived living in an alley, man. In a drug, red-affected house, man. My house was always also the drug house as well. Um, my oldest brother, you know, he made it into a, a PCP house. And it was a lot of drugs selling in the house, man. And just overcoming all that stuff, just looking back on it, I'm like, man, you know, a lot of people can't survive that and still have a, a sense of sanity about themselves, man. Um, so that's that's a major accomplishment for me, overcoming so, that. Yeah. So going back to like you being a drug house, so like like they were selling drugs. They also were they also using drugs in the house. No, we were yeah selling and using, but it was mostly selling. Mostly selling. So it was uh, just like it was the spot where you went to cop. Yeah, and uh, that's how I became uh, into that. You know, so you young and you get told, hey man, when somebody knock on that door, you said this leave, you said this PCP, and uh, my oldest brother, he you know he was. He was a stingy something, man, and he didn't really give us shit. So we used to have to steal his drugs just to make money to get us something in our pocket. And uh, I just could never understand that, man. But that opened me up to the drug dealing um, at 11, 12 years old, 10, 11, 12 years old. This is what had to happen. Man, this is how my mama mentally ill. She don't got no sense because she's severely mentally ill. My brother making all this money, man, and uh, he just didn't do right. He went righteous by us, man. And so he kind of opened us up to that, man, to that lifestyle. And um, I, used to, I used to hold that against him because I'm like, man, if I was his age, I probably would have told my little brother, look, I know this is what it is, but you don't do that. Even though it's in the house, man, play ball, because I, I was a damn good basketball player. I wanted to play basketball. I was the best basketball player in my class. I won the MVP when I was in eighth grade. And that's really what I wanted to do. I didn't want to sell that shit, but... Sometimes you don't have a choice. I tell people all the time, uh, people always say you always have a choice. You don't always have a choice. Uh, sometimes you get victimized and you, you be a victim of things, but you don't have a choice um, at certain ages. And so that's how I thought that, that's, man, I'm going to eat this way. This, I'm going to get some food in my goddamn soul because I literally, we don't have shit. And so what I mean, that I mean nothing. So if I want that cheeseburger, man, I'm gonna have to sell this leaf and make me some money off this just to put some stomach, put some shit in my stomach. And uh, but like I say, I'm glad those type of things happened because that what built me today. I won't take that back. Yeah, it was messed up. It was a dark time, but that was my neighborhood. It was just about everybody in my neighborhood was, you know, living through that and had to survive through that and just seeing. What my brothers and them did over there, man, and we did. We basically had the whole neighborhood sprung out on PCP, where it was them like zombies like around there, man, because we, we was the happy stick house. Mm. Um, and that just, thinking about that, you just like, damn, man, you you overcome all that that destitute, man. And so I would tell people, I'm amazing, man. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we, you, was, you, was, you, was in the, you was in the streets for a minute. Okay, but you did you did go get back to school. So oh yeah, I always loved school. How did you get how did that how that transition work to go from like dropouts to back in school at such a young age? You know what was funny, man. I left people all the time. I, I told I, I told my uh, when I came back in the sixth grade because uh, this woman by the name of Miss Mary, some of my childhood friends from the old bed I was standing in, uh, there was a beautiful woman, man. She had like twelve kids, 
and her grandkids were there. But she took me in. She took me and my sister in. And uh, she gave us clothes. And we actually stayed with her for about six months. And uh, she gave us Maryland clothes. Uh, and I went back to school. And all while I was it over with her, man, I never sold drugs. So I told all the kids, they were like, well, where you been? Where you been for so long? I told her I was in Idaho because <laughs> he knew I just, you know, because I told you know, he knew I was a little, you know, you just call me some little game banging and all that stuff there and did things. So I just said, man, I was in Idaho. But it, I was able to transition right back because I always had affinity for school. I was one of them kids that I just liked it to go to school. Uh, you know, for some reason, I, I liked it that. I always had the affinity to learn up under the worst situation. So that was another thing with me. Even when I was selling drugs heavy, I was still going to school. Because I knew at some point I'm about to transition from this shit. I can't make no life out of that. So I always had this thing with school. School was kind of like my my saving grace from a lot of things to keep me sane from so many, so much of stuff I had to see growing up. That was my getaway, uh, going to school. Yeah. All right, so so you back in school and you hooping, you you learning. All right, so then you you transfer to uh, high school. You're a teenager now. I went from Faraday. I trans. I was going to Michael Faraday. Mm -hmm. Then I transferred there. We moved over here across the park on Pulaski and Maple. So I actually transferred out of Faraday mm -hmm. in my eighth grade year, and I went to Tilton. Mm -hmm. So when I went to Tilton, um, that's when I just blew up on the basketball. Mm -hmm. You know, I became the MVP player over there and everything. And my coach, he was telling me, he said, man, look, hey, he said, don't go back to, don't go to Marshall. Because I'm like, I'm going to Marshall, I'm going to Marshall. Mr. Hanford, i never forget him, said, he said, man, you're going to go over there. And you're not gonna be shit," he said, "cause you're gonna wind up all your just your neighborhood, all your people there. You're gonna wind up doing this and that." And man, he hit it on the head. Mm -hmm. He hit it on the head. So where did uh, he really want you to go? Um, he was really wanting me to go up north, just any school up north. Mm -hmm. North. You're like he just told. He said, "Just man, go to any high school up north, man." Mm -hmm. He said, "Don't go nowhere to that schools." Mm -hmm. And uh, and of course I didn't. Uh, want to just be around your own surroundings and being familiar. Yeah. And I played summer league for Marshall. And uh, next thing you know, I'm getting big old gangster black soul tattooed on my arm. And the coach was like, man, man, you, you can't play with me with this shit on your arm, man. And um, I'm like, wow. So I tell everybody, I probably would have been the original hoop dreams, man, because I, I was that dude, man. Um, and I just hate I didn't get to see how that was played out, man, from that decision I'm making just to want to be like my middle brother to get this gangster black soul put on my arm. And, so I tell my brothers, I tell them, I said, man, y'all kill my basketball dream, man, <laughs> trying to be like y'all, <laughs> You know what I mean? Okay, so, so you go to Marshall, and so how, do you, uh, how did the whole the Black Soul connection happen? That's just what it was. It was, was just that school, so. Yeah, that's just why I lived that. You yeah. know, either you was going to be an unknown or you a Black Soul. That's the environment. That's the culture there. Mm -hmm. And uh, didn't nobody tell us not to be that. Uh, and so that was just the extended family, another extended family from a dysfunctional family. You went from a dysfunctional family to a bigger dysfunctional family. Um, and that's what it was. And that's what my middle brother, I always looked at my, my middle brother more. Uh, me and my older brother, just because of the things he used to do, man, he went righteous. Mm -hmm. uh, and my middle brother, I loved him. He's crazy as hell, but I loved him. And uh, mm -hmm. just one of those dudes, man, that hold it down. He taught me a lot of stuff, man, how to survive in these streets, man. And I wanted to just be like him. Had a lot of respect in the street. Didn't nobody mess with him. Didn't play no games. But he was a nice, humble dude, man. But he just, he didn't go for none. And he had the highest respect out there. And so I always wanted to be like that, you know what I mean? Uh, 
you know, I took some things from my, my older brother too, but my middle brother really had influence on that. And so I was cool. You know what I mean? It's just that, man, my whole family is gang related. And uh, I'm going to say nations, because right? we, we are a nation. Uh, and that's just what I assimilated to. And then think twice about it because you, you know, you never had no discouragement from it not to do that because that's just what it was right there. You know, and, and West Godfield, East, East Godfield Park, you know, that's home of the souls. Uh, one of the original spots of the, of, the, of the black souls there. So that's just what it was right there. Like I said, either you was going to be unknown from Monroe and, and home in the fifth city, or you was going to be a, a black soul from Madison to home in, to California, you know, and, and down um, home in. So on a, on a soft end, I mean on the north end of homeless, so that's just what it was around that area, the whole school. Okay. okay, so like you, you you were in high school, you were a teenager now, so like is that, that didn't kind of engulf your life, like is that what you were, you were looking, I'm trying to, what I'm really trying to say is where you, where did you see like the black souls, like kind of like that, that family that you was, that like the intact family you were looking for? Um, or was this like... That this, just, this, this is just my, this is just the way it is. Yeah, it just, it just what it, like I say, when you walked out the door, everybody, all your friends, that's just what everybody was. You know, all of us grew up together. We just black souls, because our big brothers are somebody with black soul. Their cousins black soul. Or their mamas, auntie black soul. So like I say, it was just one big dysfunctional family where everybody was nation involved, involved in nation some type of way. It's kind of like, the nation of Islam, you know what I mean? It just, this is just what it was right there. Yeah. And so it was always, and the thing about being a soul, we always push, uh, soul means sense of business, unity, and love. So I was more gravitated to just the overall love that our nation stood for, mm -hmm. and because uh, I'm a loving person. And just to be a part of something that really was, the foundation was to show love, show sense, show obedience and unity to, that gravitated to me. Because we was uh, that thing generated just for the love of the community, and just like every other nation, it got corrupt, and uh, you know the oppressive system moved it in another direction. Um, but growing up, it was just it was a part of a beautiful thing to say, man, you was a black soul because we was the we was the smallest nation. We still are the smallest nation out of all the nations out there. But we just had that respect that man, these guys are don't have the biggest numbers. But they get it done, you know. What I mean? <laughs> um, they 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 get it done, um, and that's nothing to brag about. But it's just that we we was able to have a lot of respect for not to be big in numbers. So that's just something I was always proud of to be with that nation, man. Just understanding that history and what that history was really about. Um, so it wasn't like I was looking for another family. It, was, it just it, it, it was kind of it was already there. It was there. You know what I'm saying? So okay. it just so it was you didn't have to search. Search right. It, it was, was just there. it was just there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So okay. So we, so now we got you. What you're going through your high school years uh, in March? What what what, what, what time frame we around? What years? I went to I started high from '87 to '91. '87 to '91. Yeah. So we we're late '80s like the yeah like crack era. Man, you know it was crazy. Uh, because from '80 from like early 80s, so I want to say maybe 90, mm -hmm. that was the PCP era. Mm -hmm. Everybody was on leave. We called it Happy Sticks. That was the PCP off the Happy Stick water. Then it transitioned to the early 90s with the crack. 
Uh, okay, uh, so it's different because when people talk about the eight, it was like as soon as the, that crack just hit everywhere. So y'all, no, different here. we were still on the west side. People were still on that leaf. So we still party at like they, the seventies. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we still on that leaf. You know what I mean? So the the crack was getting in there, mm -hmm. but at that point, the happy stick was still kind of like the drug of choice. Mm -hmm. You know, more people were still on that on that water, mm -hmm. and then I want to say maybe at the end, at the at the beginning of the nineties. That's when the crack era just really jumped off. So that's when it finally hit, hit on the west side. The west. Okay. And and when it hit, it was over with. Mm -hmm. But like I say, from the early '80s up into the beginning of the '90s, it was leaf for nothing. That happens. Everybody was off that water, man. I, my my oldest brother had got rich selling that water, mm -hmm. uh, but he wound up going to jail for ten years for it. Uh, and everybody in the neighborhood was selling water. Then, like I say, we transitioned to the crack. But all through when I was going through high school, man, uh, it's crazy because I game bang, I sold drugs, I did a lot of that, man. But I always went to school, uh, and I was able to by me being well respected. Uh, it's amazing how how I made it through high school, and uh, I was smart, man. I'm always been, uh, I always knew how to play both sides of the game. So I tell people all the time. Uh, they was like, well, was you hardcore? I say, it's crazy. I, I did hardcore things outside of school, and it didn't really catch me at that time. Mm -hmm. But the beautiful part is, I say, everybody who I came up with, they got kicked out. You know what I mean? So it kind of made the path more easier because I said, damn, all my guys kicked out. I can just go to school, and my guys and them, they're going to they're gonna make sure I get there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, because I was always the one. They always felt like my guys knew that I would be the counsel. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'd be the one to take care of everybody. And so, you know, I had a lot of people that would put it on the line for me. Um, just out of that respect, because I always went to school. You see what I'm saying? I always say, no, fuck that. We're going to hang out. We're going to do this here, but I'm going to get up. I'm going to school in the morning. Because that's where the girls at. <laughs> so when people, people like talking about like code switching now. You were code switching back yeah, in the day. Yeah. Yeah. But I always was, I was always righteous too. Yeah. But I just still knew you do that and you still can do that. You know what I mean? So it was never to the point where I said, man, damn, I got to drop out of school. No, because once I went back, cause like I said, I always had an affinity for learning. Mm -hmm. um, and like I say, that was a getaway for me. You know, that was escape for me going to school. A lot of people don't realize I used school as an escape mechanism. You know, from all the power and all the shit that was going home. Going on at home, I'm like, okay, I can go here and escape. So was there anyone in Marshall that you know, that you say like, man, this, this is why I'm coming to school. Like, they, you know, they got yeah. my, you know, uh, they support me. So. Mr. Davis, man, he was my, and I love Coach G. Shout out to Miss Gators. Uh, somebody told me uh, just recently she just lost her grandson, but man, she was just like the coolest gym teacher and teacher that man that she still is. Uh, the legendary Dorothy Gators. Uh, yeah, man, uh, you talk about women's basketball man, in Chicago, uh, that's the number one name. She's uh, <laughs> she always getting on me too, man. Ah, why you bullshit? Why you ain't playing for the school? You on some bullshit, ah. Uh, but she just, her and Mr. Davis, man, and Mr. Davis was my division teacher. You know, the home room yeah. teacher. And he just always say, he like, man, he just called me an asshole sometimes because, you know, I was selling drugs and stuff like that. But he say, man, you know, when you talk, people listen. Mm -hmm. And you should do something with that. You know what I mean? Just by him observing, when I used to speak in the class and speak in the homeroom, like other students, they would be quiet. And they just, everybody be tuning in what I'm talking about. 
And so he just pulled me to the side one day. He said, man, you should really think about doing something about that, with that. And uh, when I graduated, he actually sent me $10 or $20 in the mail, man, when I graduated, man. And uh, I just, like, that was love, man. He didn't have to do that. But it's just like that guy there, man, used to take my own time, man, you know, take heed of that, man. You People listen to when you speak. So. All right, all right so, you know, we're 91, you know, you graduated high school. Like, so, once, when you, you no longer got to go to school, so what are you doing now? Shit, I, you know, that's when I really just got into the streets real Because mm -hmm. <clears throat> I, I went to, uh, from 92, got from like 92 to 94, I was going to Washburn Trade School. Mm -hmm. But that's when my back really started to bother me. I was going for home business, maybe. Oh. And uh, we were just in the middle of uh, learning how to lay concrete. And my back just got stuck on me. I'm like, what the fuck? Uh, then I, you know, I didn't, I never got it checked in. Come to find out, I had a headline fracture that came from when I fell off the roof, man. <laughs> I used to do some crazy shit, man. I jumped the, jumped the roof, man. And when I made it across to the balance, the balance broke. So I fell like two and a half stories down. For what, for what, what were you jumping the roof again? <laughs> man, we just used to do that, man. We used to just jump roof, man. Because we used to flip, jump roof. And this is stuff we used to just do as a kid, man. So, so this is like, these are like houses. You jumping from roof to roof. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's the thing we did out west, man. We had these big COVID buildings, so you yeah. can like literally run and jump across the roof. Remember the movie Juice? Oh, so it was like that. It was like that. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, okay, so you, you and Q, <laughs> right. you know, jumping roof. We jumping roof, man. So, and my dumb ass jumped, man. And the battle just fell, and I fell all the way down. And I'm like, man, this shit crazy. And I never checked that out, man. And when I went to the, the doctor, man, and he said, man, you have a, a tiny, like, fracture there. He said, have you ever failed? And I thought about it. I said, yeah. I said, man, I fell off a roof when I was a kid. From, he said, that's where from. And so, you know, I just <clears throat> let Washburn go. Then I got into the streets real, real heavy from, like, 90 91 to like 96, you know, I just <clears throat> went out there, you know what I mean? I just became, you know, a, somewhat a, a block legend, <laughs> you know, during that time, man. But then the crazy part, I always said, I said, if I, if I see 26, 27 years old, I'm done with that shit. Mm -hmm. And as I got 26, 27 years old, the game started to just change, it just changed drastically. And I, I felt like it was time for me to leave it alone, and that's when I went back to school. Mm -hmm. I was actually in the in the transition going to school too. Then I started feeling guilty. I'm like, damn, man, I'm selling a lot of drugs. I'm killing a lot of people, man. Uh, and I like, man, let me go back to school for alcoholism and substance abuse counseling. Maybe I can get some of these people off the drugs that I helped sell it to. And so that righteousness just started really started fucking with me. Just seeing all the people that I love, me selling drugs mm -hmm. to love members, two family members. Uh, just me being unconscious of that shit, and then once my my thinking tried to start to change, I'm like, man, how can I go do better? Because uh, I got a love for my people, and I'm like, man, well, let me go back and do this here and see how can I come back and help, man. Just to atone for some of that damage, man, that we doing in our neighborhood with that shit, man. Okay, so so you trans so this is where we're like in the mid to late nineties. You transitioning from being on the block to more of a living your righteous life. As you say, so how how's that transition going? Like, how, 
Is it just a clean break or is like people still trying to pull you back? It's all a conflict because even to this day, if I walked in, in my hood, I walked on Madison at home and I walked anywhere with souls at the, the first day, they're going to say, what's up, soul? And, but that's a beautiful thing, because like I say, a lot of people don't know when you need nations, there's a spiritual aspect to it. That's why a lot of the gangs got spiritual symbols, because it's a, um, it's a spiritual evolution that you have to go through. And the ones that understand that, they say they, they OGs. And uh, a lot of times you get it twisted. OG mean original God, not original gangsters, because once you savage, you got to come back and you got to go in tone, and now you got to become a teacher. So actually, through my transition now, I just get so much respect because I'm souling from the spiritual aspect of it, from the higher sense of it, from the evolution of, of that nation. And that's the stuff we, 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 we get lost a lot of times because that got broken up by the system. Um, so the transition was still there because now you got to try to, okay, you got to make up for money that you now you don't have. Because I never worked a job, B. Mm -hmm. My first job was at 28 years old. 20, I can't, I'm, I'm not shitting you. My first job was at 28 years old. I had one lit job for like two or three months in high school from the from the work program. Okay. But that shit went on job. I was like $4 an hour. Yeah. And I only did it for like three months. I don't even count that. So we see, y'all saying what minimum wage but was I, back in the day. Man, I never had a job, man. I'm telling you, my first real job was at 28 years old at Blue Cross Blue Shield. So I always had drug money. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, now, okay, once I get this job like that, I'm okay. I got to make some major adjustments, major adjustments. So I tell people all the time, I don't try to say like other guys, I was making twenty, forty thousand dollars 40000 Just Just know that I was all right. <laughs> I wasn't hurt for nothing. You know what I mean? Uh, I can go get some things if I wanted some things. Mm -hmm. And that was a major adjustment now, trying to adjust to making four, five hundred dollars every two weeks. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a big-ass big adjustment. <laughs> uh, but the beautiful thing is, you know, my ex-wife, uh, we wasn't married at the time, so she, she did a lot to help me through that, through that transition. Uh, so, man, I was just, then I learned how to play the game. So while I was going through college, shit, I was getting the financial aid money, I was getting public aim, I was getting stabbed, hey, I was doing it all, bro. And so I was trying to find other ways to, you know, try to get some money in on, on, on top of that and then just having to just adjust to, I can't buy that type of shit, though, bro. So it's humbling now. I can't go get that now. I can't go out there and, I was never the type of guy to stun it, but I always used to like to look good. And it's just certain things you had to do. But I said, man, shit, if I'm on, if I'm a transition, and I get sent to the penitentiary. This is just shit I, I got to do because I was taking care of so many people in the penitentiary. So I was going broke anyway just on the fact that I was doing so much for some of the, a lot of the brothers that was locked up and some of the brother kids. I just, I just was doing a lot with the money. Mm -hmm. So I tell people all the time, I say, shit, the minute I made the money, I gave it away because I'm a giver. Uh, and so during that transition period, you know, I used to like, man, this going too slow. I used to think about going back to the street, but I said, no, nah, I can't go because the game, it's the same game, but the players just change. They're different. Uh, you know, it's no loyalty. It's none of that stuff. That's overrated. I hate when people use that word. That's the most overrated word in the world right now, as far as when the guys say loyalty. Uh, we, don't, we don't understand what that means. Uh, so that kind of like de deterred me from just even thinking about 
going back. I think I tried maybe one or two times just to get some of that money on the side, but it was on some side shit. And I said, no, you know what? If I'm going to do this thing right and not go to the penitentiary, I got to just walk straight. Mm -hmm. So you have to no, be all man. the way. All the way. It wasn't no five in and five out. It don't work like that. Because yeah. uh, the five that's in is going to get you caught up all the time. So I'm just able to make that transition, man. Okay, okay. So you talk about like your your wife at the time. So the, the, is this is this time where you had your first child during this period? No, my my first child was born when I was um, in high school. Oh, okay. Oh, so we yeah. skipped over. Yeah, we skipped <laughs> so over that. I just, yeah, over. we just talking. We skipped over that. All right. So. Shit, my daughter that much older than me, man. <laughs> It's like, so, like, you know that movie, uh, what was it, like, don't jump in the hood, you know, like, we was putting this, right. uh, put this dad to bed, so it was like, yeah. he was coming in and tucking you in, it's like, his, okay. his son older than his daddy, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was another thing, too, man, that we ain't touching on that, that was, that was, uh, that was real big for me, when I had my first daughter, I think I was just making 18, I was, that was 1990, 19, 1990, mm -hmm. August 31st, 1990. Right. So you're getting ready to like, transition out of high school. So yeah. you know, you're, in a, you're an adult. So what, what, what America calls an adult, I don't know. Right. I don't know how you feel at the time. <laughs> yeah, but you know what, B, I was always mature yeah. for my age, man. Yeah. And uh, once I had my daughter, man, I was like, man, I I can't sell this shit for too much longer, man. Yeah. But it made me proud that I was able to do things for because I had the money. Yeah. Uh, to do things, you know, even though it was drug money, but then I just really got to think like, damn, man, I, I want to be around for when she want to graduate. I want she to graduate. I want to just see her successful. And so, man, them the things I was really thinking about, like, man, I got to be here for my for my daughter because she every bit of me. If you see my, old, my oldest daughter, you be like, oh, my God. So I tell my oldest daughter, I said, you lucky your dad ain't too ugly because she every, every bit of me, man. Uh, and so that was a big change for me, man, um, just having – Having my daughter, man. Mm -hmm. You know, then a couple of years later after that, uh, I had a son, but my son had passed when he was 16 months. Oh. Just broke my motherfucking heart. That's that's my son right there. Mm -hmm. That's he would have been 20. My oldest daughter would be 29. He'd have been 20. He'd he, he'd be 25 this year. Mm -hmm. And so, man, uh, just having all these experiences early, just it's it's, it's crazy, man. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but yeah, that was a good. A real good turning point to me. Like I said, man, I, I can't stand these streets. I can't make this no lifelong thing. It don't work like that because I want to see, I want to be able to go through that process of seeing my daughters and them graduate um, and shit because I'm the only male in my family that reached high school. Wow, wow. My other two so brothers, the other brothers dropped out in, in grammar school. So they didn't reach. They didn't reach eighth grade. You see what I'm saying? <laughs> so I graduated eighth grade. High school and college, um, and just for me to achieve that, that was big. And me and my other sister, we are we are the only two. Not my my other my other sister got her diploma, but we the only two that graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm the only one that, you know, got her some college education, got a college degree. But like I say, the only male to get out of eighth grade, <laughs> high school, and in my immediate family, man. So. And I always want to model that, man. Okay, so, so we know we went we straight back, you know, without your daughter, we had to, we had to go, okay, go back and get her. Right, right. So we back, uh, right. we're in the mid-90s, you transitioned from the block, you know. You are, you are, you said you always had it in your mind, 
always had that kind of righteous spirit. So now we're going to like, going into 2000 now. So how, how is it like transitioning in? After, after I got my first job, man, uh, it's like, man, 1997, 1980, 1997, 1980, I took an African-American history course, and I, mm -hmm. Mr. Hurd, man, that, that brother there, man, and I, I thanked him a couple of years ago. Man, he just brought out something that was already in me, man, just the love for black people. Mm -hmm. And, man, what I learned in his two classes, man, his two courses, uh, was just phenomenal. It just really changed my just really changed my life. Just how I see myself as a black man, and just want to do more because man, he he opened me up to who we are as a people, who we've been before the boat ride. And man, it just like after that, I just was on a journey. After that, um, one of my other professors, she actually wrote me my first uh, job letter recommendation, and um, I still got that letter to this day, to this day from 1998 that she wrote, and uh, I tell her all the time, and him, that they saved my life, because I was in that transition period, and I knew I couldn't go back. Mm -hmm. And once she wrote that letter, and what he was instilling me from that thing, I didn't look back. So the 2000 was just okay. How can I grow, how can I build off the foundation of what was being laid from the teaching that they gave? Even though I had all these street, these street teachings, which was a brutal thing. Now how can I take the street, teach, the, the street teaching with this educational teaching from this institute, how can I merge and grow in 2000? Mm -hmm. And so right after that, I was finishing up my, my alcoholism and Bruce and substance abuse course. I was in doing, about to do my, uh, my practical. And so they sent me up to Ravenswood Hospital to do the practicum over there. And I experienced some racism over there and I kind of let that deter me. Um, Cause I was like 20, 28, 27, 28 at the time. And they put me over there, man, with a whole bunch of white folks, man, that had drug addictions that was older than me. Mm -hmm. So basically, they were looking, okay, what could this nigga tell me? First of all, he's a nigga. Second of all, he's 28. I have a habit that's older than him. <laughs> and then um, some of the people there had made a joke about our people. And I don't play that shit. And uh, I say, this this ain't that. And I hate I let that deter me because that's what stopped me from getting my certification because I, I never completed my practical. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I went into working for Blue Cross Blue Shields. And then from that, I got back into Easter Seals where I went, which was a behavior school because mm -hmm. I always felt like, man, I wanted to counsel people um, or be in some part of education. And that's how that turned out. And so this when I started, I just really started doing the mentoring, things like that. And ever since then, that's that's been my path, you know, to to make the the, the, the unconscious conscious. So that was kind of like all the foundation for that. Okay, so why are you doing this? I know like around this time you had you had your your other your next son, yeah, and your uh, daughter, yeah. So how how was that part of your man? It just was just part of the growth, man. And uh, it's funny I tell people all the time I never asked. The all energy to give me another song. The all creative energy. You know, people call it what they want to call it. I call it the creative energy. Mm -hmm. And the ancestors. I never asked the ancestors, say, man, give me another song, because I always had a surrogate son, too, that I took care of since he was two. Mm -hmm. My oldest daughter, brother. Uh, and so, you know, then I had, you know, stepdaughter from my ex-wife. But uh, when my, my, my second born, 
my second son was born, they was just like, man, I get a second chance at having a son again, a biological son again. And uh, it was a beautiful thing. Then a couple years after that, my other daughter was born. And so just being a, a, a young father, just holding that responsibility down, being there for my kids on every level, you know, that's a big accomplishment because I always told my kids, I said, y'all will never say I'm fucked up because my daddy wasn't in their life. Mm -hmm. I joke with all the time, I say, if y'all fucked up, it's because y'all want to be fucked up. Once y'all fucked up because your daddy wasn't in life, I'm not going to give y'all that out. And so that's like one of my most <laughs> proudest moments. So my kids could never, ever throw that in my face and say, my daddy didn't show me this, he didn't support me there, he didn't show me emotion there, I'm not going to give y'all that. You see what I'm saying? Because all of us have those father wounds or mother wounds. I say, you know what, let me not put those wounds on my kids. You know, even though I went through the divorce and the divorce is like a death, I never stopped that. That never broke me from being the father. I was always was, but the damaging from a divorce is damaging, but that never stopped because I was always in my kids. That never separated me from my kids. You know, my son, I took my son to live with me and I had my daughter with me every week, every other week, in the household with me. So that was, that was my main focus, to make sure that, man, my kids can't use me as an out. Mm -hmm. You ain't going to do that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? All right, all right. So you, so you were you're working at Easter Seals, and, you know, you're going, you were married, went through divorce, but, you know, you're still going through, like, still doing fatherhood, which is, but how do you feel about, uh, especially with fatherhood, you know, it's a lot of things that they say about, you know, the black man and, Absentee fatherhood. What did, like, what, what, was it, was it just the stereotypes? Was there something in you that said, I'm not going to allow these outside narratives dictate, you know? My I just think that just, that just was all in me. Cause like I say, uh, I'm righteous, B. And just when I, when I just found out that I come from the Europe, the Europe people, my ancestors are Europe, the Europe people of Nigeria. And, uh, before they uh, become Islamic, before they um, transition into Islam, and a lot of them still follow the old spiritual system, which is from uh, ancient Kemet. Uh, DNA-wise, we righteous. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? We believe in truth, justice, reciprocity, balance, order, propriety, propriety. Um, and we take care of our people. And that was just something in me, in my DNA. Um, and I always, and I wasn't mad if I didn't come up with my father, of course. You know, and I tell my people town, say, I didn't come up with my father, but I wasn't mad at him. You know, when I was in, I think when I was in 12th grade, 11th grade before I graduated, I reached out to him and asked him to send me some money, but I never got it. Then I was just like, well, fuck him, he didn't send me no money. Uh, and I'm trying to graduate because I didn't want to go out there and sell no drugs, you know, to get popped up before I graduated. And I was mad at him for a minute, but then I left that alone because I said, you know, uh, I can't let that this shit dictate what I'm going to be for my kids. Because mm -hmm. like, I'm not angry at my old man like that. Because his situation was fucked up. You see what I'm saying? So I had to understand his fucked upness and his, and his relationship. So I said, I can't let that dictate me what type of father I'm going to be to my kids. You know what I mean? And so that was just in me to be right by my kids, and to answer your question, I think a lot of times, be a lot of our black men wasn't taught how to be fathers, and then some of them don't want to be fathers. That's a scary thing. 
so we got to get better at that. And then, by, like I say, by us being raised, by so many of us being raised by single men, single, single mothers, uh, a lot of that stereotype come out here. But I have seen a lot of men be by their kids. All my brothers that I grew up with, we in our kids' lives, just about all of us. And the numbers don't lie, yeah. but yeah. then they do lie. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Because yeah. it's a lot of men that's out here putting in that work. Um, and we doing this fatherhood at the highest level. Yeah. But of yeah. course... That's, that's say that black fathers are the yeah. most involved. Yeah, you know, but <laughs> don't, when you see the numbers, okay, because you'll see a lot of kids not fathers not do the incarceration, do the drug addiction. And so that's another thing. That's why I took up this role as being like, okay, man, a community... This community father because I get it uh, and so we can't just always say what the stats say man because I know it's a lot of good men out here doing what to do I'm a part of a group of men that that's fathers every day and we take pride of being in that uh, in spite of what the numbers say uh, just from that perspective man so we got to start putting something at the bed can that can we be better oh hell yeah can we be better fathers can more of us take responsibility oh hell yeah that's absolute um, but until we start healing as men and addressing our fatherhood womb as men, that's going to always stand in our way of being the best fathers we can be, along with other things. But yeah, uh, so that always been one of my biggest and proudest achievements, man, just knowing that, man, I'm upholding my duty. I don't want no award to that because that's what I'm supposed to do. You see what I'm saying? That's what I'm supposed to do. That's my duty. I'm like, oh, I'm the father, yeah. No, that's what I'm supposed to fucking do. As a man that's conscious versus a man unconscious. So most of us are unconscious. <laughs> you see what I'm saying, bro? All right, so we, well, I'm going to go back to that. But for, we transitioned to 2000, you working, you know, so you being a father, you working with uh, Eastern Seals, but we went to the end of the 2000, end of that decade. You, uh, you joined a mentoring program. That's where, that's where you and I meet. Yeah. All right, so talk about how did, how did you get involved with uh I always did that, um, but it, it was funny that, uh, like I say, all through I was growing up, man, I always been that guy that people can talk to. Uh, I always call myself the counsel. Uh, just, you know, I don't want to get too deep into, you know, no street shit, but I was always able to just counsel people and put people at ease mm -hmm. and can stop shit, uh, certain things. But when I... I was at East Seas for like 10 years, man, and I'm like, I can't do this no more because I dealt with every behavior disorder in the DSM-4 book, man. And we used to have to restrain these grown men, these grown men on medication. We kept them in there. We kept the kids there from 5 to like 25, bro. So I done watched a lot of them come in there at 14. And become grown men. <laughs> and, man, let me tell you something, man. That strength that them young men have sometimes, and when they go into they, they triggers, man, and they want to fight, and you got to go in and calm them down. And that really started to hurt my back, and my back was because we were just restraining every day. And then we, I have, it's funny I tell the story, man. I had one young guy, he used to think he was a wrestler, man. And so he's like, you guys can't take me down, fuck him, I'm going to be water. So he, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So man, so when they used to call these cold reds, Ain't too many people trying to run to go get this dude, man. And so, about you know, about being, you know, the bigger guys, like, man, look, I can't keep going and wrestling with these guys, man. You know, they want to bite you, and you know what I mean? I, I just, I just wore me down, man. 
And I'm like, man, I got to go do something else, man. So I said, you know what? And I just jumped out on faith. I started looking up mentoring organizations. And um, I saw youth guidance. And I literally just walked into it. I walked into the office. Yeah, I heard this stuff yeah, that you walked in. There, there I just, was no application. None, none of that, bro. I, I walked in there. I had my portfolio. I had everything, all the work that I've done. And I was talking to Monica, Monica Jones. She was the first one I saw. She was the front desk. And I was telling her about myself. And she said, you know what? That one guy you need to see right there. And it was Tony DiVittori. And I talked to him. I said, hey, man, look, this is what I do. He got my background. He looked at some of my stuff. He said, man, you know what? We're looking for a guy like you. And that's how I <laughs> become okay. a band counselor. Yeah. Right, you know so, what I mean? Yeah. So I this is around 2010. So um, you were part of uh, what, was, what was the name of the, like the first program you were with? It was it was the. Uh, well, I believe because I, I think it was the map map program. It was the map. Yeah. yeah it was it was the map. Right. Yeah. Something it was the map program. Public schools. Where we had to basically they say basically stop getting stop young people from getting shot this summer. Mm -hmm. Kids that would most likely get shot, and so, okay. which was an interesting. Yeah, thing. So let's, let's go into uh, like you were. Where were you placed uh, for this program? I was placed at Marshall. My old, my old, my old, my old school. Ain't that stuff? Old school. So tell me about the experience your first year mentoring at Marshall. Man, it was uh, <laughs> uh, it was a brutal torture. <laughs> <laughs> It was just, uh, first of all, just going back home to where I'm, where I'm from, man. You know, that's home. So I'm just so happy just to go back there, man. As you can see, I still walk around, man, with my martial idea in my pocket, bro. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I'm a commander for life, man. See for life. Um, just being able to go back there, doing, doing, doing that work, man. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I thought it was only one because I, I, we, when I was in high school, we kept we had a new ID each year. Yeah, I got all four years. Yeah, so you can see I used to have twisties in my head. I might, right. show, you, I might show you one day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, uh, just really learning how the systems work, um, and we didn't have all the type of trainings, man, and things like that that we have now to pre to prepare us to understand what systems are, mm -hmm. and how to uh, be diplomatic in the systems, mm -hmm. and just just by me being a product of public school and just seeing that the public schools really hadn't changed when it comes to certain educational uh, requirements and how they go about doing businesses. What I found out that is uh, CPS is a, a, a really powerful entity and if you go in there man and you advocate aggressively and you you call them on some things on some things that they hadn't been doing right they're going to marginalize you and they're going to put you out to school and that's what happened to me. Uh, because I was I was doing everything right, but I was do I, I was doing everything wrong too. Because I was bucking the system, and I was challenging them on things that they wasn't doing righteous, and they felt that I was a threat in that. Mm -hmm. And that was the one thing that I had to learn. Okay, how can I still go in here and do my duty enough to still be diplomatic, where I can challenge them on certain policies without them feeling attacked. Oh, demoralizing me, mm -hmm. and so that was one of that was a great learning lesson for me too. It hurt me uh, because you know when they put me out to school, they were saying it was a difference of philosophy, which was bullshit. Uh, so, so why why do you think they uh well, let's just say it was it was the principal who put you out to school? Right? Yeah. Okay. So why why did the principal put you out? <clears throat> it was just a threat because I challenged her on something, mm -hmm. 
And uh, unfortunately, man, you know, this is how they still break us. You know, they put, they always put a lot of sisters in positions. And I'm not mad at that. You know, the black woman is God to me. She should be a higher authority, but she also have to understand what the system does with that. Mm -hmm. So when they put a lot of sisters in play, sometimes a lot of our sisters, they get arrogant. And then when they get challenged in certain ways, they don't know how to work in balance with us. And by me calling her on certain things, she's like, okay, who is this MF to come in here and tell me what I'm not doing? Or, you, you, see, you see what I'm saying, brother? And I never meant for it to go that way. I wanted just to come in there and help her, help her help them. Mm -hmm. Because I come from there. I know these young men. I grew here. You know, <clears throat> this family here. And I just felt like by her understanding that how much outside influence that I had from the outer people, that was a threat to her. Um, because <clears throat> Marsha was in a, in a turnaround phase. That was the first year they turned around. Okay. And she literally told me, she said, well, the young men that you're working with, I don't want dads in my school. This is how she talked. Because she said, I'm not going to let 20 mess it up for 300, 2 or 300. And I said, you know what, I, I understand that rationale to a point. But the young men that I'm talking about, all of them had IEPs just about majority of them out in the system. If you push them out, they're going to jail. This is the school to the prison pipeline. And maybe I said it wrong when I just told her I said I can't let that happen. And when I told her that, when I said I can't make that happen, okay, go. I got to go now. Okay. Now you've been disrespectful to the queen here, because I'm the queen of this school. And I'm going to show you who runs this school. Even though you got all the power with the outside of Florida, people know who you are and things like that. And I'm making dramatic changes in these young men. These young men who want to come to school, they come to school every day. Yeah. So, what, what, was your, so what was your caseload? I, had, I think I had 20 max. Yeah. Uh, and the, one of the most amazing things about it, uh, they used to tell him, uh, because I started, uh, I started educating them about the IEPs. And so a lot of times, and <clears throat> you know, and I'm going to say this, you know, this is what CPS do, and they know this is what they do, even though I'm a partner with them. They know what they do, but they got to be called on that. A lot of times they used to suspend these kids, man. And they would tell these kids to stay at home for three, four, five days. And they would count them, they would count them days as unexcused absences. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you when know, it's like you said, I couldn't count. Like, you know what I'm saying? You were screwed, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so when I used to tell the kids to come back to school, they'd be like, okay, what the hell are you doing back in school? Of course, they're going to say, well, Mr. Stinson told me I can come back to school. <laughs> So I, you know, I got taxed for educating uh, them about their IEPs, um, and it, and it's it's fucked up. But that's that that's the game. Mm -hmm. um, and so, man, it, it it is what it is. And by me being righteous, I'm gonna die righteous. Mm -hmm. And if I got to get crucified for that, so be it. Because um, in my heart, I did the right thing. Mm -hmm. nice. You know what I mean? All right, so this this was a one year program. So after the end of the one year, what's next for you? Uh, just man, just. Seeing what it's gonna go, uh, and uh, you know, if, you know, if we got laid off for about. I got laid off for about four months, and then they called me back once they got the next grant, and yeah, so that's yeah. when I came in as a a, a, a BAM counselor. Yeah, yeah. So you transitioned from Marshall. What was your next? What was your next? What I next? went to uh, went to Douglas and Ella Flag Young. I went to I went to I went to intern for uh, 
my sister Cherie and Lewis Wright, they was like my elders and my mentors. So I went over there for a couple of months. While I was while I was laid up, I was still working. But wasn't getting paid for it. So, I was, you know, I was, so yeah, you, you know, you, you got family, but you so, like, right. you so believe in this that you're working for free. From, right, <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, because this is, this, I know this is my purpose. You know, I know this is what I was meant to do. Mm -hmm. Then I know the power of that. This is what I have to do, not only spiritually, but I had to do this because this is what quiet of the nation that I was about. Uh, and a lot of people don't understand that. Um, so this is, this is my duty, basically. Um, so I, I was at, I went to I went to Douglas there, man, and from Douglas to Ella Flag Young, Manly, I, so many different schools, man. But it's the power in that because I believe in that, and I still believe in that to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so you transitioned from being like the intern to the BAM counselor, and you, I, I guess we, we got to share this story because we there was a training that was involved. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> all right, so, all right, so this is. <laughs> Normally on these episodes, I do not like uh, interjecting myself or anything about me. It's about my guests. But this one <laughs> now, story, free. this one story <laughs> that is about to come up is where is one that me and Al shared together. So talk about your <laughs> your training to uh, become and uh, I, what, what what is Bam? What is Bam? Let's just go into that first. Well, Bam is a <clears throat> Bam is a program, man. It's it's becoming a man and it's character education. It's rites of passage. You know, it's uh, you learn emotional intelligence, uh, critical thinking skills, um, and just a process. You know, this whole becoming a man thing is a process. So you go on this journey of self-exploring yourself. You have to challenge yourself. You got to look at your manhood to become better at what we're doing. And so that don't trip us up in the work that we're doing with young men. So it's it's a beautiful program. Uh, but to, to go to the training, one of the trainers, and I can't speak too much on it, it requires us to go do our own work. And uh, when they first uh, presented the training, and I said, "Man, I'm not going that shit." And uh, <laughs> but they were like, "Oh man, you gotta go, man. It's a requirement." So I was adamant in what I said again. I said, "Well, I ain't going that shit." But then I thought about. It, I said, "Well, okay, if I'm gonna challenge the young men on some things, I got to be willing to to be challenged." And uh, I'm so thankful that. B, B Smooth went with me because B was the only brother down there with me. <laughs> and um, it was extremely interesting. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know, I know B just say De La So, De La So. But it was, uh, I got to know B on a whole nother level. So that was, that was a beautiful thing, man. Just getting to know my brother on a whole nother level from that experience, man. All right, so. So you, you become a BAM counselor, but you're not only doing BAM, you're doing, you got something on your own, your own program. You got yeah. something game. Yeah, but I'm in a, I always uh, was in a, just establishing this 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 gang program that I was uh, developing. And um, gang is um, gaining awareness to nullify genocide. And it's really about uh, um, the conscious mind and uh, mental health, because uh, we got to start pushing that as a, a mental health initiative. Um, so I tell people all the time, we operate out of our conscious mind, we get programmed in that. And that's the thing we're not aware of. Because uh, the first time, you know, every time we say, well, somebody dies senseless, that sense of violence, I don't look at it that way. Um, I look at it from a perspective that we're unconscious. Um, I was just telling somebody just the other day, I say, not one time was I was in the street, you know, I didn't never hear none of my guys uh, say, let's go out here and let's just do some really dumb shit today. That, it never went that way. No, you don't get up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm going to make the news today. 
it don't work like that because mm -hmm. um, we operate from a uh, conscious uh, mind a perspective so my thing is okay how can I start uh, bringing consciousness to the unconsciousness uh, and the thing is there's there's no come there's no coming to consciousness without pain so you got to go through a certain amount of pain to, to come to your, to your conscious mind but a lot of times we get trapped in that and that's how we get programmed in that and that's what's killing us because we program in that unconscious mentality and I just wanted to bring awareness to that, and that's a mental health issue that we, we really got to start addressing. That's what things are, what they are right now. All right, so you've been you've been doing the BAM, and uh, you've been doing your game, you've been doing that. You you still currently doing both. Uh huh. All right, all right. So, uh, like, where, where do you see your where do you see the future? We're we we we've we've gone from the '70s to today. So, where do you see the future? <coughs> Hopefully, man. I'm just really trying to get this initiative, man that we take this gang challenge in, in the city of Chicago. We all, we all take these old, excuse my language, these stupid ass challenges. Man, let's just take this mental health challenge, man. Because to me, mental health to me, uh, along with uh, financial literacy, which is part of mental health too, is the big initiative to me. Um, because our kids and our adults are going through so much trauma and mental health issues that never been addressed. Uh, we've never been here from that boat ride. And unfortunately, uh, the powers to be, they manipulate that. Uh, and that's a, that's a, that's a multi-billion dollar industry to keep us in our unconscious mind. It's a lot of money being, being made off of us being unconscious. And that's on every level. On the physical level, spiritual level, economic level, financial every any, any domain you can speak on, they're killing us from being unconscious. So what, what, do, you, what do you mean by the unconscious mind? I'm conscious of not being aware of uh, the gang. Mm -hmm. I was talking about the other day. I said, man, we always talk about how hood, how how, how poor the hood is. I say the, the hood is not poor. We just have poor spending habits. I say because if we were so poor here, we wouldn't have the Asians here. We wouldn't have the Arabs here. We wouldn't have the Chinese here. Everybody is doing business in our communities mm -hmm. because they know we have poor spending habits. Mm -hmm. So if we was conscious... We would know that. Mm -hmm. So we would be sustaining self. You see what I'm saying? They wouldn't be able to manipulate that. And that's what the system plays on. The system plays on our financial literacy and our unconscious not being aware of the trickery that's out here. And so I'm just trying to bring awareness uh, to these, to every level on that. But it's going to take us really looking at ourselves and doing the work on ourselves and healing from the tricks that's being played on us, man, out here, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm talking about out here. Um, they 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 bank on us, uh, just staying asleep, um, and that's the problem. They say we can't let them wake up because they are our biggest commodity. We spend the most money, you know. We keep them in power because of the money we spend with them, but that's due to our own unconsciousness. Uh, All right, man. This is this was great. This is great talk. So we, we reached the, reached the halfway point. So second half is always people's choice. So whatever you want to talk about, whatever whatever's been on your mind, topic you want to want to get out there to the world, just right. chop it up. So chop it up. I just want to just going to talk about uh, just being a man and what that looked like uh, in relationships. Uh, what's hijacking? I want to just talk about emotional intelligence. Okay. I think. Um, if anybody that's listening, we got to advocate for emotional intelligence. That need to be that need to be a, a curriculum inside of a school. 
what's hijacking us as us people is our emotions and um in 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 the, the clinical world psychology right now that's that's at the forefront emotions um so we we was never taught how to deal with our emotions emotions and everything and so emotions is uh is energy and emotion and when we don't check our energy we pay for that I mean, on every level. So that's just something I feel like that should be uh, addressed. We, we're not emotion intelligent enough to even have relationships. A lot of our relationship ends because we don't know how to handle our emotions and what they bring about. Uh, I made this word up called her. <coughs> her is habits, emotions, and relationships. That's the key, that's the key to everything. <coughs> but if you got messed up habits, you're going to have messed up emotions. And then with the messed up emotions, you, you're not going to have the best of relationships. And relationships are the key to the world. And that's one thing, you know, we do bad. <clears throat> and we got to get better just understanding what our own emotional level is or what our own EQ is. And <clears throat> a lot of us are not even aware of that. So that, that I feel like that's something that really should be a curriculum, man, inside of these schools, man. Uh, the lack of that. And so if you have emotional intelligence, you're going to make better decisions with everything in life, with your, your, your finances, your relationships. <clears throat> Just about anything, you'd be more successful with that, and that's something I'm really trying to key on now to just always being aware <coughs> of my emotional intelligence level. Yeah, because I noticed, like, you know, this this gaining my emotional intelligence. I learned, like, in my relationship, people have that fight or flight type of mentality. Right. My mind, my type when when it's like trouble or like some trauma happening, I'm just I'm just gonna retreat. I'm right. Gonna go away. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna lock it down. And a lot of people that I've been in a relationship with, they're, they're very emotional. They, they want to fight. They want to fight for this. And they, they, they think that I don't care. But that's my, that's how I protect myself by right. treating I think a lot of times we don't understand, like, each body has a different emotional reaction. Right. And we're not, we're not, we're not, like you said, emotional intelligence. We don't have the sort of intelligence to know, like, okay, if this person's going to do this, then I have to adjust <laughs> right. the way I'm going to deal with that. Right. And, like, sometimes when people have emotions, I'm just... Like sometimes I can, I probably shouldn't retreat. I probably should be like, okay, let me meet you at this halfway level, right? You know, so we both can be even killed and communicate. And see, that's that like you spoke on, B. That's that fight or flight response, and uh, us just not being aware of that. Uh, so you know, fear has two meanings. You know, the first meaning is forget everything around. That's yeah, when we gonna flight. That's that's that's, that's that was you know what I mean? the court right there. I'm like, I'm getting, I'm getting hell out of here. I'm getting out of hell out of here. And then the other one is you're gonna face everything and rise. So when you have emotion intelligence, you're gonna you're gonna take that that on and say, you know what, let me overcome this. I'm gonna face everything and rise on this versus just getting in that fight or flight mode. I'm I'm getting the hell up out of here. Um, because I don't know how to deal with this here. You know, I, I got these maladaptive behaviors, this is how I handle this here. And so when you have emotion intelligence, now this is your new adaptive behavior. And this is something that have to be taught, man. There's just so many of us not aware of that. And like I say, I talk to adults every day. And they have no clue of that. And I say, man, what's your EQ level? Like, what the fuck are you talking about? Some DJ equipment or something? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, uh, but uh, it's just something that... Uh, <laughs> my base on my treble. Right. <laughs> and so, man, it's just by me really doing the research on that. And, man, and that's hijacking us on every level, man. When you see our young people out here getting shot down by everybody in the system, especially by the police, man. And they justify, well, he was out of pocket. His emotional intelligence got him shot. You know what I mean? He didn't know how to control his emotions to control somebody else's emotions. Mm. You see what I'm saying? And that's what I'm saying about having a challenge because with your emotions, you can actually dictate how others respond to you due to your emotion, how they will react. 
and uh, we're not getting taught that at all, man, unfortunately, man. And uh, that's one thing that I really want to speak on today for everybody just to go out there, advocate, and try to make that a curriculum, not only at school, but in the home. Do your own research on that, man. I've always been a self-educator uh, of myself, too. So if we can just do a lot of self-education around that because certain things are not going to be taught to us, period. Uh, because, like I say, we're a commodity here. So, you know, if you, you're doing business with people, you don't want them to be smart. You know what I mean? On certain shit, you won't make no money off of it. Uh, so do your own self-education, man, and just try to push for this this emotional intelligence movement out here. I know it took me it took me years to to get out of that that run thing. Yeah, the, and that way, and, it, and it's, I know it's hard. It's hard to stand man, there. It's, it's, just, you know, stand on your. It's hard to break old habits. I know because we creatures of habits. Yeah. Um, but that's all a part of me when I'm doing that game too, gaining awareness to nullify genocide. I'm making people conscious of all the things that keeps us unconscious, mm -hmm. and have people uh, prosper on our unconsciousness. You know what I mean? And even our own people is a is a profit for our own unconsciousness, man, which is which is fucked up, but just the reality of things, man. Yeah. All right, man, that was, that was beautiful talk. So I always end with my guests asking them three things. So it's the last last book you read, last movie you watched, last song you heard. Um, I actually just uh, read my buddy book, Andre Brown, last book. And he gonna kill me because I'm having a, a brain I, fall. I, I, <laughs> I can't remember. I, I know. Oh the, my the god. Song with the beta fish. The beta fish. Yeah, the, the journey. Fish. The journey of the beta fish. <laughs> yeah. Man, which is an excellent read. It touch on so many, so many things that we go through just as black people, just our own aces. I mean, aces. Our, our, our adverse childhood experiences. Yeah, actually, I went I to. A, I just. It was a month ago. I went to a conference on aces. So, mm. Yeah, it was. It was. And I did my own school. I was just like. I did not know this. Oh, I, I was, was kind of high. Man, I was an eight, bro. <laughs> oh, man, I, I did some people. I scored with my eight. My family, they was like at nine. Yeah, eight, nine. <laughs> and and that's another thing we have to address, too. Uh, our, our aces, and that need to be in school. Our kids need to be given an ace test, too. Uh, but, yeah, that was the last book I read there. Mm. What's uh, the last movie you, you saw? Like, you know, you done theaters or watching uh, television or, or Netflix? Or I just, uh, what's the... Uh, the Avengers movie. Yeah. Oh, Endgame. 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 Yeah, man, it's off the chain, man. <laughs> I, 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 that, hey, that was that was worth three hours, bro. Didn't fall asleep at all, man. So that was that was it, there. Right. And uh, what was the last song you heard? Man, um, I'm a real right nigga about my song. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like him, man. Hey, like, hey. I, I, I didn't. I never heard a song of his until like recently, but right. I always heard him speak, and he's he's a powerful. No, look, listen to real right, and you understand why. I, I feel like I'm a real. I ain't gonna say nigga. I'm a king, now, man. When I mean king, not just not raising new guys, man. But I've always been real right, man. Real righteous on everything that I try to do out here. Well, I, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me, Mr. Albert Stinson. I want to thank all my listeners, and as always, be good and drink your water. See you next week. Hey. I'm a real right nigga. I'm a real right nigga. I'm real right. I'm real right. I'm a real right nigga. I'm a real right nigga. I'm real right. I'm real right. You ain't never take no stand. If you don't sit down, you stand. If your whole life you live like you a man, uh -huh. then yell out. I'm a real right nigga. I'm a real right nigga. I'm real right. I'm real right. I'm a real right nigga. I'm a real right nigga. I'm real right. I'm real right. If your word is your bone, if your team on when you on, uh -huh. if you dead and gone, your name gon' live on. 